From Creation Ministries International, you're listening to Creation.com's article podcast. The research and insights that give God the glory, refutes evolution, and it gives you the answers to defend your faith. I'm Joseph Darnell. For the last 200 years or so, many anti-Christians have resorted to a scurrilous lie acting consistently with their worldview that the early and medieval Christian church taught that the earth is flat. One of the most prominent recent examples is probably the most powerful man in the world, the US President Barack Obama. He said, Let me tell you something. If some of these folks were around when Columbus set sail, they must have been founding members of the Flat Earth Society. They would not have believed the earth was round. We've heard these folks in the past. Since President Obama also supports infanticide and gay marriage, which are clearly out of line with biblical teaching, should it be surprising that he would also repeat one of the commonest anti-Christian fables? Historian Jeffrey Burton Russell thoroughly debunked the Flat Earth myth over 20 years ago in his definitive study, Inventing the Flat Earth. The famous evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould favorably reviewed this masterpiece. There never was a period of flat-earth darkness among scholars, regardless of how the public at large may have conceptualized our planet both then and now. Greek knowledge of sphericity never faded, and all major medieval scholars accepted the Earth's roundness as an established fact of cosmology. Russell showed that the flat-earth belief was extremely rare in the Church. The flat-earth's two main proponents were obscure figures named Lactantius, approximately 240-320 AD, and Cosmos Anticoplustes in the 6th century. Gesundheit. However, they were hugely outweighed by tens of thousands of Christian theologians, poets, artists, scientists, and rulers who unambiguously affirmed that the Earth was round. Russell documents accounts supporting the Earth's sphericity from numerous medieval church scholars such as Friar Roger Bacon, who lived in the 13th century, inventor of spectacles. Leading medieval scientists such as John Buridan, who died in 1358, and Nicholas Oresma, who died in 1382, the monk John of Sacrobosco from the 12th century who wrote Treatise on the Sphere, and many more. One of the best-known proponents of a globe-shaped earth was the early English monk, theologian, and historian, the Venerable Bede, who lived in the 18th century, who popularized the common BCAD dating system. Less well known was that he was also a leading astronomer of his day. In his book On the Reckoning of Time, among other things, he calculated the creation of the world to be in the year 3952 BC, showed how to calculate the date of Easter, and explicitly taught that the Earth was round. From this, he showed how the length of days and nights changed with the seasons, and how tides were dragged by the moon. Bede was the first with this insight, while Galileo explained to the tides wrongly centuries later. Here's what Bede said about the shape of the earth. It's round, like a ball, not like a shield. I quote, We call the earth a globe, not as if the shape of a sphere were expressed in the diversity of plains and mountains, but because, if all things are included in the outline, the earth's circumference would represent the figure of a perfect globe for truly it is an orb placed in the center of the universe. In its width it is like a circle, and not circular like a shield, but rather a ball, and it extends from its center with perfect roundness on all sides. And the leading church theologian and philosopher of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274, 
wrote in his greatest work Summa Theologica Theologiae, the physicist proves the Earth to be round by one means, the astronomer by another, or the latter proves this by means of mathematics, for example by the shape of eclipses, or something of the sort, while the former proves it by means of physics, for example by the movement of heavy bodies towards the center, and so forth. As early as the 5th century, medieval European kings carried a symbol called the Globus Cruciger, Latin for cross-bearing orb, as a Christian symbol of royal power. The orb, usually a golden sphere, represented the earth. Hang on, a sphere representing a flat earth? Something's wrong here. Oh, that's right, it was a spherical earth, and they knew it. It was topped by a cross to symbolize Christ's lordship over the earth, and held by the ruler to symbolize that he had been entrusted to rule his lands. In medieval portraits, the scale didn't indicate physical size but importance, hence the large size of the cross. Indeed, there are many works of art portraying Christ himself holding the orb, the classic savior of the world theme. What we've said so far demonstrates that Columbus, who lived from 1451 to 1506, was never opposed to flat earthers, simply because there were none to oppose him among either church or political leaders. So what is the real issue? Columbus was trying to reach India by sea, the long way around the earth. But to do that, his ships had to carry enough provisions for the length of the journey. He had learned that the 9th century Persian astronomer Alfraganus had estimated each degree of latitude spanned 56 and two-thirds miles. But Columbus thought Alfraganus meant the Roman mile of 4,856 feet, whereas he was using the Arabic mile which was 6,004 feet. Thus Columbus thought that the Earth's circumference was only about three-fourths of its actual length of about 25,000 miles. Columbus also greatly underestimated the distance between Japan and the Canary Islands as 3,000 Italian miles, whereas the distance by sea is more like 12,200 miles. It was thus the size of the Earth, not the shape, that was under dispute. His critics argued that ships of his day could not carry enough fresh water and food for such a huge journey, and they were right. Columbus was lucky that an enormous continent was in the way. He knew nothing of previous Viking discoveries centuries earlier, and he still thought that he had landed in the East Indies, the then current name for the Indian subcontinent. The results of his mistake persist today in the common name of the Native Americans Indians, a translation of Columbus' Spanish term, Indios. An example of the misinformation in the education system comes from the 20th century high school history textbook, The American Pageant, by Thomas Bailey. Many of its editions claimed the superstitious sailors of Columbus crew grew increasingly mutinous because they were fearful of sailing over the edge of the world. There is a myth that states that people realized the earth was round because they saw ships slowly sinking below the horizon. But before telescopes, it was more likely the other way around. Sailors returning to land saw high mountains before lowlands. Also, sailors from the northern hemisphere crossed the equator well before Christ and reported that in the south, the sun shone from the north. They also knew how to measure their latitude from the angle of the sun at noon, which works only with a spherical earth. Those are the facts about Columbus. 
The much-parroted flat-earth myth about him comes not from history but from the tales of Washington Irving, A Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus, published in 1828. Irving was probably America's first genuine big-selling writer, but he admitted that he was, quote, apt to indulge in the imagination. Flat-earth belief was certainly a figment of his imagination. It was bad enough that this myth entered the public perception thanks to Irving's wide readership, but it became worse when it acquired the veneer of scholarship so it could be used as a club with which to bash Christianity. The main propagandists for this cause were the notorious 19th century anti-Christian bigots John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. Draper, a fine chemist and photographer, first president of the American Chemical Society, but a lousy historian wrote History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science in 1874 as a poorly informed polemic against the church. White was a disgruntled ex-Episcopalian and the founder of Cornell University as the first explicitly secular university in the United States. He published the two-volume work History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom in 1896. Both authors relied heavily on the work of Cosmos, portraying his flat-earth teaching as typical rather than the almost forgotten extreme minority view that it was. And they are the ones most responsible for the discredited conflict thesis between Christianity and science, instead of the real history that the Christian worldview was responsible for science in the first place, while it was still born in other places like ancient Greece and China. Colin Archibald Russell, who lived from 1928 to 2013, Emeritus Professor of History and Science and Technology at the Open University, wrote, Draper takes such liberty with history, perpetuating legends as fact as he has rightly avoided today in serious historical study. The same is nearly as true of White, though his prominent apparatus of prolific footnotes may create a misleading impression of meticulous scholarship. Both J.B. Russell and Gold argue that Draper and White had an agenda to discredit Christians who opposed the then-new theories of Darwin as flat-earthers. And nothing much has changed. Although hardly anyone in the church has ever believed the flat-earth myth, quote, Incredibly, some people still do, wrote Natalie Wolkover in Live Science last year. The Flat Earth Society is an active organization currently led by a Virginian man named Daniel Shenton. Though Shenton believes in evolution and global warming, he and his hundreds if not thousands of followers worldwide also believe that the Earth is a disk that you can fall off of. So next time an evolutionist calls you a flat earther, point out that the leading flat earther is one of his fellow evolutionists. Before you go, I want to tell you how the ancients figured out that the Earth is round. That's coming up right after the break. Hey listener, while you're studying the early chapters of Genesis, have you felt like you're not learning as much as you might if you had a written commentary? As amazing and meaningful as the book of Genesis is, I want to learn everything I can from the theology and history that started, well, everything in life. But as many of the details in the book of Genesis relate to science, it would be great if it was also a scientific commentary. That's why I recommend that you get a copy of a great book by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, The Genesis Account. This classic commentary on Genesis chapters 1 through 11 contains a thorough analysis of the text itself and has a number of features that set it apart from many other Genesis commentaries. It defends the biblical creationist position, 
creation in six consecutive normal days, death resulting from Adam's fall, and a globe-covering flood and confusion of languages at Babel, and in the process, it explains how the rest of the Bible interprets Genesis in a straightforward manner. While skillfully documenting how interpreters throughout church history have taught the topics of the book of Genesis, and that long-aged death-before-sin views were a reaction to 19th-century uniformitarian geology, it also provides cutting-edge scientific support for Genesis history. But most importantly, it demonstrates that all doctrines of Christianity begin in Genesis chapters 1-11, through 11, so straightforwardly answers the commonest objections to a plain understanding of these crucial Genesis texts. So get your copy of the Genesis account today at creation.com store. The ancient Greeks well before Christ had realized that the Earth was a globe by observing lunar eclipses. They realized that at such times, the Earth was between the Moon and the Sun, and it always cast a circular shadow regardless of the direction, which proves that it's a globe. For example, the famous philosopher Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century BC, said, Either then the Earth is spherical, or it is at least naturally spherical. And it is right to call anything that which nature intends it to be, and which belongs to it, rather than by which it is constrained and contrary to nature. The evidence of the senses further corroborates this. How else would eclipse of the moon show segments shaped the way we see them? As it is, the shapes which the moon itself each month shows of every kind, straight, gibbous, and concave, but in eclipse, the outline is always curved. And, since it is interposition of the Earth that makes the eclipse, the form of this line will be caused by the form of the Earth's surface, which is therefore spherical. And this lines up with the Bible. Isaiah 40.22 tells us that God sits above the circle of the Earth. Indeed, the Hebrew word for circle in the verse implies ball-shaped, just as Bede taught about 1400 years after Isaiah. To sum up everything we've covered, almost all the early and medieval church scholars who commented on the Earth's shape explicitly said it was round. Medieval European rulers used a golden sphere or orb called the Globus Cruciger to represent the Earth under Christ's rule. Columbus' opponents never disputed the shape of the Earth, but only its size. And they were right. And the Flat Earth myth began with a fictional account of Columbus in the 19th century by Washington Irving. Then it was aggressively pushed in influential anti-Christian polemics by Draper and White. And a final irony. The leading Flat Earther today is an evolutionist. The Creation.com article podcast is hosted by me, Joseph Darnell and produced out of the U.S. studio of Creation Ministries International. Learn more at creation.com. This episode was written by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. Our writers and scientists host a really cool talk show called creation.com talk, which you can find right here in your podcast app and YouTube. If you'd like to help us, become a monthly supporter using our donate page. You can also help out by telling your family and friends to check out our podcasts and creation.com. Be sure to follow Creation Ministries International on Facebook and Instagram and Parlor, and subscribe to our free e-newsletter, Infobytes. From everyone at CMI, thanks for listening.